reality doesn't exist until it's been engaged. Uh, and so it's not, that's where, to come back right what you said at the beginning about linearity, it's not that one thing happens and then another thing follows, but that the thing that follows produces the thing that happens. And so nature investigating itself, the idea of an exteriority and an interiority that fold, is because of this idea of a, of a mutual performance of matter in which you would relate strongly with someone like Barad. So I think that's the credible sort of conceptual framework behind this that's saying actually there's a reason to think space and time uh, differently uh, and space and time and matter differently and on that basis we can then produce this way of conceiving of how we might get past a, a nature culture binary. Matt, welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. I've been reading along with our friend Matt Valor uh, a book written by Vicki Kirby called Quantum Anthropology, Life at Large. Uh, it's been a fantastic read, highly recommended. Um, what you'll hear is actually the second time we met and talked about it, but somehow I managed to lose the original recording not really sure how that happened but we give a pretty concise summary of the first two chapters we had read so I think what you'll hear makes sense so anyway hope everyone's doing well out there happy belated Thanksgiving and uh, hope you'll enjoy the conversation peace How's it going, man? Yeah, good. How was Paris? Paris was lovely. Um, a little bit overwhelming in the sense that there's uh, there's just so much to see. Um, right. And there's no way to get to it all in a week's time. I saw the photo of the three of you you put on Facebook. Paris looked good on you all. We hired a photographer to do family photos. Ah, nice. So that's, that's it was one. unusually good. <laughs> That, yeah, we don't normally look that good. We take, you know, enough pictures. Uh, one of them is bound to look pretty good. So <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking because it's so. We had this conversation before. It's so near me, really. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to France unless I'm forgetting a moment that I went there and I've forgotten about. I don't think I've been there in at least twenty years. Well, there's no reason to go there, I guess. But n- not anymore because it's you know now you've got to get a visa and all sorts. Even to visit, you need a visa. I think so. Isn't that the whole thing? To be, this is this is this is how um, much we all understand about Europe. But I, I, I think maybe not a visa. You need a passport. Yeah, you need a passport. You don't have a passport. No. <laughs> we got all of our visas updated, ready to go. When, it's about five years ago, when Trump became president, because I didn't really know how it was going to go, and. I well, you, just, of, you wanted an exit strategy. I wanted an exit strategy, and I figured passports are a good thing to have on hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fair play. Maybe that was a little bit alarmist, but better safe than sorry. Right. Yeah. That's what. That's why I have my bunker. You have I'm a bunker. Kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I have buckets of porridge ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen these things? The, the the sort of the fallout buckets. Um different people saw them now. They're you know, it's Well, like everything you need in a bucket. It's basically like they there's different versions of it. There's one guy who's who will explain how to render fat and create buckets of lard that will uh basically be able to sustain you for months at a time, you know, blah blah blah. There's there's a Christian version of it i can't remember who who the guys are but they sell these apocalypse buckets there's different varieties of this out there it's it's pretty hysterical in one sense and terrifying terrifying and tragic on the other yeah exactly i'm I'm glad you had a good time in paris anyway that's a that's a fun that's a that's a big trip 
Yeah, it was good. We're already talking about, you know, when, you know, when do we go back? And we're thinking like, ah, oh, maybe in a few years or something like that. Who knows? We might never make it back, but love the architecture, love the art. It just seemed like a very, mm-hmm. like the vibe of the place was very relaxed. It was nice. We met a lot of people from our area, from New York and New Jersey, just kind of randomly. We'd bump into people. All right. That is random. And you picked up some Derrida to read on the way home, I saw. I was trying to find another book that was out of print. I think it's like a Jean, uh, Jean-Luc, not a Jean-Luc Marianne book, um, Jean-Luc Nancy. Mm. It was out of print. Um, so I went on a used bookstore and I could get free shipping if I spend enough money. So I was like, all right, I need to buy a second book. Oh, that's my favorite. Oh, you know, that, yeah. I was like, oh, my heart. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. I have to buy another book. Um, so I was like, you know, Derrida has been coming up a lot lately in things that you and I have been reading. Mm. I, I feel like I want to understand Derrida a little bit better. And grammatology's got this uh, notorious, I don't know, infamous quality of being very challenging and dense. And uh, I would say, and so that that was what actually what excited me. Like I'm like I'm like yeah, I'm up for that challenge. You know? Yeah, good. I think the. The translator's introduction by Spivak is um, is really useful. I found that really helpful. I mean, she's hard to read, but Derrida's hard to read. But just yeah. the whole translation of French idioms and style, like we were saying with Stiegler, into English is, is difficult. But I, I found that quite a useful way. And she talks about how um, Derrida puts Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx mm-hmm. under erasure. Uh, as the kind of proto-grammologues, I think is the phrase. I haven't read it for years, I'm just trying to remember it, but I think it, she, she had, in her mind, each of those figures represents a kind of foundational uh, tradition of what had become European thought from the kind of mid to late 19th century. And so she's saying, yeah, to, Freud puts like the psych under erasure, uh, or is it Heidegger rather than Marx? Anyway, it puts being under erasure. Anyway, and it's for Derrida to basically produce the effects of all that these great thinkers have done. So she's she's trying to locate what Derrida is doing as, in one sense, revolutionary, but in another sense, the fulfilment of work that had begun elsewhere. Right. In a sense, it's sort of triangulation of those thinkers that are placing yeah. these foundational philosophical concepts under erasure yes that's exactly it yeah yeah, yeah they, they break the foundations of being or knowledge or whatever and 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 derrida produces from that this grammatology yeah so you know only maybe 20 pages in and it lives up to its reputation as being a very difficult text yeah um you just gotta go with it though because i think the more you yeah. read it then the more you kind of you, it's like learning a language i think you, you're going into a yeah into a world of absolutely that's my experience too with other difficult readers heidegger um yeah Zizek, exactly. Zizek, yeah you know you just kind of you stick with it you suffer through it and it's a sort of rite of passage or uh trial by fire <laughs> something like this yeah yeah find the first part of our recording which is why i haven't published it yet i have the second cut off didn't it yes something happened i thought we were okay but i can't i can't find it so i have the second part of it i was thinking about just recording a maybe a little bit of a longer introduction setting it up Um, i mean we can do if you if you want to we can try and we could just sort of recap you know how we get into the book uh as like a conversational intro if you want to give it a shot, kind of setting up what we've read and what was in the um, sort of preceding sections and, and what this project is all about, go for it. Otherwise, we can sure. just jump right in. Yeah, well, I'll give it a go. Um, yeah, so the book is Quantum Anthropology's Life at Large by Vicky Kirby, who's a professor of 
I'm not quite sure a professor of what, but I think anthropology and sort of feminist studies in Sydney. Uh, and as I read it, it's a problematization of the human. It's trying to work with this idea of how are we actually going to talk, how are we going to do an anthropology if we're going to take seriously that the human is problematized? Um, and in particular, she wants to deal with the question of language. And so she's picking up with a, a, a quite detailed reading of Derrida in chapter one uh, and teasing out this idea that Derrida says there is no outside of the text. And it seems to me that the trajectory she sets there is that if there's no outside of the text, is that simply, as it's been picked up in cultural studies, a kind of way of talking about or a way of demarcating right, cultural culture. studies? It's yeah. actually a way of saying here's culture. So nature is... You know, there was a nature, but we can't access it because we only we only have the inside of language, outside. which is kind of like the the Judith Butler take on it, right? Um, and so, is there a way of reading? There is no outside of the text, which actually takes seriously nature as a text, um, and more than that, actually as an author. Uh, she, to be fair, I don't think Kirby uses that word author, but that's how I interpret what she's saying. And so chapter one was this uh, detailed reading of Derrida. And then in chapter two, she picks up the question of mathematics as a language. So she's wanting to make the case that what we have come to think of as language is too restricted to sort of alphabeticism. Uh, um, and even if we were to include other types of scripts like Chinese or Korean writing the Japanese, where it's more kind of, it, it, it's a different kind, you know, it's a picture, I'm not sure pictogram is quite the right word, but it's a kind of yeah. different kind of pictorial representation. Right. Or computer um, or computer coding or um, sort of the relations of the elements on the periodic table, all these kinds of things. Right. Right. But I think that when she's saying when she's when she's going to those last two, so when she's going to things like computer coding or the elements of the periodic table um, or even uh, biological processes or other things, she's arguing we should be thinking of those things as language. Right. Um, and to varying degrees, we feel able to do that. And so we probably could see computer coding as learning a language. Uh, because we talk about that as a language. Um, but elements on the periodic table, okay, we could see that as a kind of system of differentiated signs, but do we actually see the performance of matter according to the script of the periodic table as language? Uh, that's a whole other, like how how atoms and subatomic particles actually interact. Is that a language? I, I think those are the questions she's then starting to raise but the, in chapter two when she when she picks up the question of mathematics Kirby goes to Husserl and Derrida's engagement with Husserl to try and really get at the question of okay is maths actually a language because any of us who've come from a kind of vaguely cultural studies background tend to say no Right. Yeah, we see language as um, something that is inherently unstable, and tend to think of maths as uh, the the kind of corresponding to reality, almost deterministic. Right, because otherwise, how else could you build a bridge and it stays up? And you know, even at the quantum level, you know, this computer that we're having this call on uses quantum technology in order to function. It's the mathematical reliability of um or you know sending rockets into space i mean you make extraordinary calculations based on mathematical laws and then you put engineering to work according to those laws and you can rely on it because they work and so we don't think about that as language because you know we we would go to the other extreme and talk about poetry as the kind of ideal of language and so on. i think that's the question she's asking yeah there's a literary quality that we ascribe to language which is not incorrect but um i guess what kirby wants to say is 
somewhat limited or at least wants to challenge that delimitation that you were that you were talking about so there's a sort of ontologizing of textuality um, that's right i don't think she kind of brings it into you know like purely metaphysical speculation i think we're but we're staying in the in this zone of ontology that is that is kind of situated within the fissure i guess we could say of nature culture mind body i think this is one of the things we were actually touching on last time was like okay how is this particular negotiation or articulation of or you know reconfiguration of the nature culture problem what you know what is what's new here and i think that's what we're going to get into with these chapters chapters three and four maybe not so much in absolutely concrete terms but i think they're the questions that are being raised are really suggestive yeah i agree where where we finished up last time it, where we'd read chapter two Kirby's pushing this idea that actually nature might be scriptive, not prescriptive, like not as in nature provides before writing the the sort of is of ontology. Right, right. From which culture and writing and speech and language and all forms must become derivative. But instead, if we see being in its fullness as a again she's not reaching for nature culture but we've used that before as a kind of way of trying to talk about those together we see that whole phenomenon as something that writes that's continually adaptive and you know it's algorithmic it's constantly adaptive and adapting and creating new meanings then rather than having this idea of nature that is kind of inert and set and fixed Actually, if it's dynamic and alive and living, we could say it's writing um, in a way that that cultural studies, according to Kirby, hasn't really been able to articulate. That's that's how I kind of read the kind of how we're set up to go into these next two chapters. Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, that might actually be better than what we had uh, talked about last time. In a in a way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what rereading it all does. <laughs> Absolutely. And I I probably will reread these two chapters because, um, first of all, I just like the style of writing. It's uh, coherent and it lays out an argument in a very sort of linear way. It's interesting because one of the things that Vicky vis-a-vis Derrida is wanting to push back against is the idea of linearity within language and right. not, just, not just within alphabeticism, yeah. um, but also within maths itself right. right so i mean that's probably getting ahead of ourselves so i don't know maybe we should back up where, where do we start here um the name of the chapter is enumerating language the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics so i guess the problematic here that that is being set up is it's this well-known well-worn question of mathematics and whether it's something that's invented or discovered right um i think that's kind of the 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 key problematic that vicky's beginning with i think what she wants to say is be- beginning to tease out this nature culture problem by beginning with a critique by way of this other author rotman who's i don't know i don't know who rotman is but um academic mentor of mine sent me a pdf of rotman a few months ago uh, okay. one, one of the works that she that, uh, that that kirby's referencing here it's something to do with the uh power of zero you know it's like the kind of huh. which uh deacon takes up um terence deacon takes up in his his work on tele- teleodynamics nice i think maybe what's at the heart of what's at the heart of this this initial criticism is the idea of if we take mathematics as corresponding very closely to reality in terms of like it's uh, symbols and and graphemes and things like this it, it takes on a almost platonic quality where these markings are representations of a reality that is inaccessible to us that is perhaps eternal and and i guess this is somewhat justified in the sense that maths 
appears to us as this sort of universal language, right? It's the same whether we're in India or in the States or in Cornwall or on Jupiter. It's not subject to the sort of vagaries and uh, fluidity of, of language in the same way. And I think this is what, this is at least the beginning of, uh, of the critique that she wants to, to make. It was a really nuanced argument and I only read it this morning. So I think what you said there is great. I mean, it, I, I absolutely agree. I think the problematic of how is it that maths actually works in such a universal way is a big problematic if you're going to try and say that it's something that humans have kind of come up with. I mean, if, if humans have come up with it, this is this is a kind of well-rehearsed argument. Right? If humans have come up with it, we, we must have discovered it rather than invented it because in discovering it, we found something that works about the world and that does correspond in that sense to reality. And the, the gulf between that way of thinking about how we make marks on pages and... I mean, she uses the example of, uh, of where Rotman says um, you can't say a triangle. And interestingly, in the footnote, uh, she points out she had a conversation with Karen Barad, who was like, well, the, the Greeks said that because that was their letter delta. <laughs> so it's right. like, it's, so you, why can't you say a triangle? Why is it that you, that you think that you can't say a shape, but you could say a squiggle on a page that was the letter P? I mean, what what is the difference? Um, right, but right, somehow right. one system of differentiation seems to correspond very, very accurately and predictably within the world. And other systems of differentiation of, of marks that we make seem contingent and contextual and local and uh, subject to temporal change such that if you listen to someone... If you listen to someone reading a text from the 19th century, sometimes you're not quite sure what they're saying, uh, even if it's in your own language, um, whereas this doesn't happen in math. Yeah, and underlying this is the sort of question of not just of language, but of writing. What is the basis of, of emphasis or de-emphasis of one form of writing over another? She says this, or to put this in a different way, we might consider why the sayability of alphabetic notation is any less problematic for those figures than for any others, and that mathematics circumscribes its illustrative logic in the standard form of a sentence. I think what Vicky is, again, coming back to is this critique of phonocentrism. Derrida is probably most well-known for his critique of logocentrism, but there's this sort of secondary critique that Vicky is really emphasizing and, and leveraging here to make her point about phonocentrism. Because we ascribe writing as a secondary phenomenon to speech, which is something that seems to us to be more immediate and concrete and accessible, we attribute primacy to it. There's a similar dynamic at play when thinking about maths, where we attribute a primacy uh, or a sort of realism, a realism upon which mathematics is simply representing. And this is a way, these are twin strategies of maintaining this nature-culture division in a way that's inconsistent. Yeah, I'm not sure I said that exactly right. <laughs> no, I think that's good. So um, Derrida's problematization of the speech-writing hierarchy that does exactly as you said, that prioritizes speech because it is associated with presence and writing as secondary as something that is somehow removed as a technology removed from us uh, is part of the basis on which he makes his critique of logocentrism. The way I read what Kirby was saying was that it, maths is like the opposite. So nobody would assume that you speak maths because how would you speak a triangle is what Rotman says. Maths is a, is a written abstraction because it's not about presence. It's not about me or you and me in a conversation. It's about something that is abstract and idealist in this platonic sense that actually takes us apart from ourselves and our culture and is in fact in the realm of nature. 
that's how it's normally talked about. And so we have these two kind of conflicting views of uh, the relationship of phonocentrism to writing. So in speech, in, in what we call language, alphabetism yeah. or whatever, yeah. it's it's phonocentric. And but when we come to maths, which we don't call language, uh, it's not phonocentric. Yes, yeah, so it's sort of in, inverse image. Right. And I think that's exactly what she's trying to problematize is to say, well, actually, both of these are forms of writing. And this relationship of writing to presence is more complex, as Derrida showed. Cultural studies has become very adept following Derrida at reversing the primacy of speech over writing because it accepted his critique. Right. And was like, okay, yes, this this actually, um, but on but on political terms or ethical terms, right? Exactly, yeah. And so, actually, what you what we need to do is show the um, inherent uh, lack of an originary within our discourse. Uh, we need to problematize identity. We need to show slippage and difference and so on. Um, but we've never. By we, I mean anyone who's in the sort of humanities, cultural studies kind of very broadly conceived. Mm -hmm. We don't take that to maths and say, well, actually, uh, this uh, this operates in maths as well. I mean, she footnotes Gödel, Kurt Gödel, who's this Czech mathematician. And I remember reading uh, um, years ago when I was doing work on Derrida, there's a, a an analytic philosopher whose name I think is... Christopher Norris, who uh, writes a lot on Derrida, is quite unusual because he's an analytic philosopher, right? But but very interested in Derrida. And I remember him. He he made a real point about Gödel because Gödel's theorem, which you know is massively influential in twentieth century mathematics, was is this the uh, incompleteness theorem? Yeah, there's no. I, I can never remember exactly how to say it, but it's basically something like there is no system of mathematics that has all the axioms necessary to have like a workable system in which right, right. um it, it can know, be completely self-referential right yeah there's always going to be something that doesn't work about it is is the, yeah. is the layman's way to put it um you can always break it so there is no such thing as a complete theorem of a uh, theory of maths um or a complete system of maths um and to me that feels like i was it was interesting that she footnoted it I would have had it in the text because it feels like uh, surely a kind of foundational claim that right. actually mathematics is sub is subject to the same slippage and difference that we would say language is subject to, which seems like the point that's being made. It's it's actually all of right. this is identity is incomplete and inside and outside has to be problematized. Uh, and so then we can't derive a clear break between nature yeah. as you know, preordained and culture as um, recently invented. Yeah, and so I think this this is the the point I think Vicky's making about the problem of binarity, but then the problem that the usual kinds of responses to it produce it, it self reproduces another binarity. So you'll have nature culture. That's a problem. Okay, mm. fine. And then you have not nature culture, nature culture, which right. the, the same still thing. Still defined by the binary. Still defined by the binary. So right? I think she's wanting to push uh, transnatural or transcultural approach that she's pushing for. But I think what's really interesting in this part is how the body gets introduced into the problem. It's not just nature culture. It's sort of transposed into the mind-body problem as well. There's a uh, a problem of language that arises when considering the body. Let me see if I can find a good example of this. There is a part where she talks about the plant right. that I that I thought explained this pretty well. So, on the bottom of eighty six, when we posit a natural object, a plant, for example, we do not need to assume that it is unified and undifferentiated. On the contrary, this one thing is internally divided from itself a communicating network of cellular mediations and chemical parsings. It is a functioning laboratory, a technological apparatus whose intricate operations are finely elaborated, an intermediate node that already articulates its ecological significance in a way that incorporates 
and blurs the outside with in the inside. Given this, why is it so difficult to concede that nature already makes logical alignments that enable it to refer productively to itself, to organize itself so that it can be understood by itself? I think this kind of gets to the heart of the argument, or at least the suggestion Vicky wants to make, is that if we do efface the problem of nature culture, or if we try to interrogate that division in a more sort of concrete way, other than to say, conveniently, you know, join nature and culture to say nature culture. I think what Vicky's after is what is the precise quality of that distinction that at once is a conjoinment of the terms. Right. Yeah, well put. Yeah, because she she has this whole section where she talks about Latour and Latour's critique of the bifurcation of nature and culture, which is well known in his essay, We Have Never Been Modern, uh, and um, how he then takes that up in the development of actor network theory as a way of saying that all objects are following Michel Serres, quasi-objects or hybrid objects. Uh, and so everything is always uh, an object that is becoming and it's constituted by other things. And the, the crucial element there is to do with causality. So, yeah. so when we have nature, we have this idea of causality that is um, that there that is almost a kind of mechanistic mechanistic set of causal effects. So this happens this way because that's the natural way it happens, uh, and it's only then in culture that we're able to have sort of innovation and intention and ingenuity and so on. Yeah. And if he breaks those down and creates uh, and 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 asserts quasi objects, then we've got um, objects in which causality is problematized. Um, but Kirby's critique of Latour is still, and it felt like uh, the way she wrote about it was almost like, I think I want to make this critique, but I just want to be careful because I'm not really sure that I've necessarily got this critique right with Latour, but um, I'll go <laughs> ahead anyway. Uh, it, it sounds a bit like he's still adding nature to culture, which is right. what you what it sounds like when you say nature culture. It's like, well, we've got to problematise them, but then we put them together. And I think that was your point about the you know, the binary, even if you try and get past the binary, if the binary is, even if you're non-binary, non-binary is defined by it not being binary. And so it's, there's, um, it, it, it's still not found an alternative imagination to, to talk yeah. in alternative terms. And I think this is difficult to think about, but also profound in the sense that there is a sort of a rational component to the working through of this problem but one that ultimately seems to always just end up in a mystical space. And she because, put, she's pushing that, I think. I think I so mean, too. Not in the way you would, there's no tropes in that sense, but she's, right. she won't quite let go of the idea that we maybe need to think of maths, for example, in a slightly more mystical way than we're uh -huh. willing to. And I think it comes back to this phrase you used before that actually I think is at the heart of this. Uh, I think it's a, a phrase you read out from one of those qu quotes about the plant, which is it's nature investigating itself. One way to talk about that would be to say that that was a kind of mystical kind of phrase. You know, nature is investigating it. And another way to talk about that would be to say that that was a very scientific phrase because it's using the language of investigation, but it's locating the intentionality of that act or it's locating the um the the sort of energy of that self-investigation in nature so rather than being nature rather than nature being something that is um sort of passive and set or maybe not passive but fixed mm. uh it's active and interested and exploratory Right. There's a, she talked about in earlier sections a sort of masturbatory quality to this sort of self-investigativeness, which I, you know, sounds a little bit perverse, but I like it because it sort of invokes an idea of eros and desire. Right. A desire for oneself, but it's a desire for oneself that is only sort of mediated through the other. It's this and, and I think and, that's yeah. it. That's the crucial part of it, because the the I mean, at the heart of this, I think, is a problematization of the question of identity, which is what cultural studies has tried to do following Derrida is problematize identity 
And what Kirby is wanting to do is say, like you read out with the plant, well, it's not just humans that have problematized identities. The plant itself is a collection of processes and um, yeah. sub languages. And, and, and she says the same about, about a human. You know, if we, we peeled our skin off, you, you would find all of these th- all of these different organs interrelate. It's only the fact that we have this sort of fairly uh, bland surface <laughs> that covers up all of these different. I mean, and even to the point where we have uh, many, I mean, mi- millions and millions of foreign organisms yeah. living within us. And and what is it that, that constitutes us as an any one of us as an identity versus a, a community, for example, of of yeah. other identities? I don't know why I want to say this, but I'm just going to say it. The problem is skin. <laughs> right. We partition according to some sort of material circumference, right? So you could talk about the plant, you could talk about the cell, and then you can talk about the molecule. And I think this gets into the sort of almost fractal dimension. Vicky is also trying to invoke in one sense with the cover of the of the book, the sort of the doily that we've talked We're about. Doilies. <laughs> the sort of fractal doily, um, the, the, uh, there's the sort of entanglement that she wants to emphasize and elaborate on to talk about entanglement as not just some sort of abstract concept. It's a sort of material process that operates at every level. Yeah. But in terms of like the uh, the question of identity, it's really about like this sense of like interior versus interiority versus exteriority. She writes this at the at the top of sixty seven. Exteriority then would be but a fold in interiority, as it explores and digests its own difference. In such a scene, the Platonic insistence that mathematics is somehow discovered, appearing to precede inquiry in human creation, would not exclude the possibility that it is also fabricated in the synchrony of what appears at the same moment of discovery. This is why I say this is like beautiful writing. Yeah. Oh, and she says here, the, the, the final sentence of the chapter, between rationalism and mysticism, there is then a certain complicity. And, and I feel like that's manifested in, in his writing as well. That's Derrida's that, quote, I think. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I see it. It's in quotes. And this is why this is what makes me want to read Derrida. Yeah. This, this kind I, of thing. Yeah, you know, I said before, I, I studied Derrida... 12 13 years ago and um and i haven't read a lot of derrida since about 10 years ago but i I always felt that the critiques of derrida missed some bigger question about writing and so when i pick this book up i feel like i've been reading i'm reading the book that i've been waiting to read that has taken some very half-formed things that i felt and had absolutely no way of finding you know words for and yeah. uh, and she's she's put that into 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 words and a compelling argument and so i've i've absolutely loved this um that, that's an aside just from my own no i agree in fact i want to i want to pick up on that you brought to mind i think last time you mentioned uh levi bryant mm. um uh, he and i are friends on facebook and he he posted something that just reminded me of what you said um let me see if i can find it really quick he posts like every fucking 30 minutes. He's like worse than Trump. But the content is better. Here it is. At the risk of waxing mystical, we always find the thinkers, texts, and concepts we were looking for, despite not knowing we were looking for them. So many things I read fall flat and dead. I forget them almost the moment I read them. They don't call out or have singularities that shine, infecting me like a virus. Then there are other texts and concepts that seize me and call to me. This is something other than motivated reasoning. We have germinal thoughts, larval thoughts that swarm within us that we don't even know we are thinking. We scarcely know how to think or articulate them. And in the text we truly encounter that sees us, something of that thought is actualized or articulated. Quote, this is what I was trying to think. Right. That's pretty good. That is good, and and I think that is very very relevant to what to really what Kirby's getting at when she's saying this 
that this kind of that nature is self-exploratory because the key way that she's able to say here's actually how we could traverse or leave behind the nature culture binary is actually to see culture as nature's self part of just one part of nature's self-investigation and so if I've picked up this book and suddenly it's exactly what I was looking for Uh uh, that's because nature is self-investigating and as a part of nature I'm caught up in that self-investigation and so my meaning making structures and experience and how that relates to language is all part of a self-investigation which is a very in one sense mystical idea but it's also when she puts it like that I think quite a sort of got a scientific quality to it although no, not that's really an empirical verifiable one but it's it, it is like a, it's like nature is sort of it, nature does scientific experiments and does its own investigative journalism and does its own like psychotherapy <laughs> and you know it's like critically self-reflect you know, do you know what I mean it's yeah, got that it, to it, I think it makes me think also of the the Deleuzian concept of um the dark cursor is it in this text or in another text where the example is given of a lightning strike? Yes, that's in chapter one. Yeah, that the lightning actually reaches up from the ground and not just from comes down from the clouds. That's right. The agency is not just this lightning bolt. That's not just Zeus that throws down a bolt. It's that somehow from the ground, there's a sort of an invitational quality. It's like strike yeah. here, strike here. Yeah. It's and- actually, it's like almost like a reaching up. It's a reaching up, and that's the sign. And, and yeah. that's the, the dark precursor. It's the thing that's not visible, but it is the other of the events. It's uh I don't I don't know. I'm I'm kind of reaching here and probably reaching beyond my my capabilities. But I but I find the idea really fascinating. Yeah, and I just, do. And I think there's a um that so I was thinking when I was reading some of this about when I've read Terence Deacon, who I've I've mentioned a few times to you before, yeah. and that work on uh, teleodynamics, which is essentially how physical chemical processes through becoming systems uh-huh. ratchet up different levels of emergence until you could get something you call life. Right. Uh, and then life can ratchet up into something that you could call consciousness. And it, yeah. you know, it's a brilliant piece of work. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. But one of the things that's struck me about that, the more I've reflected on it, is that Deacon is driven in his argument by something profoundly theological, as uh-huh. far as I can work out, which is that he wants to have an account that does not rest on any what he would call homunculi, you know, there's no golem in there that is the the sprite that comes along and provides the piece of agency that you were missing. You know, in other words, there's no God. There's no hand of God that kicks the thing off. He wants a, a rationale for life in which there is no external agency. Uh, and there's a part of that that I really resonate with. Um but there's also something about um in a, in a sense there's no agency at all until there is there's a sort of it it it's almost seems to reproduce a sort of ex nihilo logic yeah a little bit and I, and i think it's interesting because you know i would take quite a latourian as you know I, i've done a lot of work now with latour's work and t- i would go along with that to a large degree in the sense of saying that objects uh right down to talking about subatomic particles have agency and agency is not equal to intention and so I think the argument that says there are forces of attraction and repulsion and you know and those create processes which create systems which emerge at higher levels and do things I think it is a credible argument I think the question is so for Deacon to shut out an outside uh, and only allow what's inside to um, manifest is in one sense an account of nature investigating itself, right? I mean, it wouldn't yeah. use that language, but it is partly that. But at the same time, it's devoid of any sense of the kind of folds of exteriority and interiority that Kirby wants to talk about following the kind of sensibility of Derrida 
where, yeah. where exteriority and interiority fold upon themselves and so what one moment is exterior is then another moment interior um right. it's it, for deacon it's like levels of emergence whereas for kirby it's um one thing within another thing at the same time as being outside it this brings us back to you invoked the, the theological question and and a question that seems to reemerge in theological conversations is the imminence or transcendence question i think that what Kirby is offering here is a, is a sort of more uh, ontological rendering of the thing you get in theological discussions where you move from transcendence to imminence, and then you realize, wait a minute, I've just reproduced the logic of transcendence in, in imminence. Yeah. And so there's a more encompassing field of thinking about transcendence and imminence or exteriority and interiority that in a mystical sense collapses the two, but in a rational sense allows us to investigate what is occurring within those folds. Yeah, that's so, really nice. And and it's not just us that are investigating in this conception. Uh-huh. If we do, we participate in nature's own self-investigation. This is This is why we could say that culture is not something separate. Yeah, and it's understandable why one could come to a theistic conclusion, even if one says in a uh, heterodox fashion that in some important way we are holographically resonant with God. I was going to say something about your comment on skin that problem is skin because i think that is actually very specifically explicated in chapter two mm. uh where and i reread that kirby's using if you remember the the example of you know like almost like uh, your crime scene investigation you know they found the anonym which is like the skull that can't be identified. Um, it's just right. a skull. How would we know who it is? Uh, and uh, over the course of you know a good hundred years, a science has built up, uh, which has increasingly taken huge data sets. And now we can work out from bone structure um, and the way that bones have been related to muscles and all sorts what a person would actually look like to a pretty high degree of accuracy. Um, And it's absolutely extraordinary. And and so it's an important metaphor for Kirby because it's actually about one identity being related to something fragmented that's somewhere else. Uh, But it's also important because it relates to a language of mathematics because it's only through the analysis of statistical probabilities that we're able to do this. Um, but the, the mathematical language has to intersect with what we call human language, perhaps wrongly, the kind of alphabeticism of, of cultural meaning, in inverted commas, uh, which is to do with the kind of buildup of flesh and meaning. And, and, and we put so much into the face. Um, yeah. And but there's a really fascinating footnote about this where she details a correspondence. By the way, just I love that you've gone and interrogated all the footnotes because I have not touched on them at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I just got, I, I really, I really, they're great footnotes. Like she write like mini essays in the footnotes. Oh, really? Okay, I have to check them out. Yeah. And um, so she, she, she had a correspondence with with someone that was doing all this kind of really interesting, almost like artistic, uh, but sort of cultural research. Uh, but part scientific research with people that were doing this kind of science of building up facial recognition from a skull, which is still mind blowing how, I mean, they can literally find a skull. You would think, how would you know it? They can build up the face and put a name to the face uh, with a high degree of accuracy. And people will come along and say, yes, you know, they, they don't know who to contact and they contact, you know, several different people independently. They get them to come along, view the face. They're like, yes, that's that person. And, you know, as, as far as you could, that that's a pretty good empirical verification. The, the reason this guy was researching it was that it's this sort of 
incredible mix of something that is profoundly mathematical because it's based on statistical probabilities, but everybody involved in it accepts that there's an art. There's this very strong artistic, um, almost mystical kind of, that's that's where she starts to draw out the relationship between magic and mystic, mysticism. Uh, and obviously you've got this mathematical language and in the end you get a name, which is the kind of essence of mm. um, alphabeticism in language. The identity, so these two yeah. things are brought together, right? But, but in the footnote, this uh, guy is kind of giving his account of his work and he's saying, as soon as you get to the question of skin, that's when it becomes really difficult. Uh, and that's where he found in his sort of uh, research work that people started getting a bit more, you know, standoffish with him. They didn't want him to push that line too much mm -hmm. um, because actually the problem of building skin over these flesh you know, you've got imagined flesh constructs over a bone structure. As soon as you put the skin on, uh, what they were finding was um, people were increasingly looking like the people who were constructing them. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, so oh, that's, it's that's almost, fascinating. Yeah. So there's this like this one. They said of this one woman, you know, everyone she reconstructs looked like her. But that becomes even more problematized because actually you can look at the same person in a different light, in a different view, and they do or don't look like themselves. And actually that's part of the interesting thing about the um, the identification process. You would have people coming forward saying, yes, I know that, that's them. Yes, I know. I, I also know that that is this person. And someone else would look at it and they're like, I'm really struggling to see the resemblance there. It's only a passing resemblance. But somehow something about that face was involved something that was intimate to the relationship that someone had, which meant they could identify it, whereas to anyone else, it didn't look that similar. Uh, and, and obviously the skin question becomes really difficult because it's super personal and it becomes politicised in terms of tone and colour and so on. Uh, and it, the, all the complexity that's involved in that. Um, and so when you were saying, you know, the problem is skin in that example, the problem is skin. Uh, and it's the kind of mediatory point at which this kind of incredible mathematical process uh, becomes something that could be translated into a name. Um, and as soon as you name it, you give it an identity. Uh, and so the, the the skin is the point, is the thing that masks the idea that the identity is actually really quite distributed. It's statistically, literally statistically distributed. Mm. Uh, uh, and it's not clear to everybody that it's the same identity. Um, and, you know, in terms of the body, the skin masks all of the different identities and processes that are going on under the surface. So I just thought it was a really interesting actual example in the book of, of the idea that the problem is skin, is the surfaces that we have, uh, that we find in the world that confuse our ability to treat identity as uh, multiple. Yeah, I, I guess in a way it sort of reminds me of, I guess the, this is the last thing I'm going to say about what we read this time because uh, it echoes some of the things that the, one of the problems that we've, we've talked about, anthropomorphism. I think what Kirby wants to say importantly is that if we accept at some minimal base level that what is true about the human is true about all of reality, then the prohibition against anthropomorphism maybe doesn't completely disappear. It's not just something that we can dismiss as completely culturally constructed, right? Because the, the nature-culture distinction here is being, if not eradicated or erased, then it's, it's, it's certainly being problemized to a high degree. Then to what extent is it possible, should we think about quote-unquote nature in anthropomorphic terms. I think ultimately this problem gives way to or makes possible a certain kind of animism that dissolves the boundary between the animal and the human. Maybe the central term there is just what is animate. Right. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that. Uh, I think these... These questions are really, I mean, these are so, such huge, complicated issues, aren't they? And so it, it's, I feel like it's easy to read a book like this and get carried away. Um, at the same time, I, I feel like it's very, uh, 
uh, it's very carefully, sensitively written. It's nuanced. It feels uh, credible, and I feel like I'm walking down, being led down a, a, a path here that I that I really uh, I've really valued. Um, you know what, what you just said there about animism. I think that relates to a lot of the kind of new materialist explorations that you and I have been interested in for some time to do with. Okay, how can we how can we reconceive the world such that it is animate? Um, without just sort of coming up with things that are a bit wacko. I, I mean, this is like <laughs> part of the motivation, right? Is that how can you have a credible way of, of of bringing some things together that feel like they've been separated? Or And and I suppose what this book is actually pushing is it's not necessarily just bringing things together. Uh, it's actually finding uh, new ways to conceive of them. And uh, this idea that, language is the way that we do that that actually language is not a human for not we language has been the basis on which humans have understood themselves as separate from the rest of everything uh right. including all animals um and the idea that it's not just animals that have language but matter itself ha has language uh, and expresses that language as a way of exploring itself and in which we then participate in our own ways of using language that does mean that animism could relate to the animate and the animate it's not just carbon-based life forms but actually things we call inanimate we would have to reconceive as animate yeah and i think that gets to where i sense this line of reasoning or, or argumentation or whatever you want to call it is going there's a real effort to not just problematize as i'm saying the, the nature culture distinction not just problematize the, the mind-body problem not just to point to a problem, but actually to begin to make tentative movement in the direction of not reconciling those kinds of terms, but in, in making more concrete the nature of those differentiations. Because I think that's, for me, what has been missing in a lot of the conversations of, of nature culture is that, yes, fine, it's one thing to say that these are not separate spheres of reality existence it's another thing altogether to articulate the precise nature of that differentiation right and not just the differentiation but what the linkage is um right. it's it's almost like we need not a new language but we need a new set of terms yeah i think that's right matt and actually just when you're saying that i think that we should maybe just refer back to the title of the book here because we're talking about quantum anthropologies and i think that the when kirby's arguing that nature is investigating itself that's not just like oh that sounds like a cool thing uh, the argument is based on the quantum mechanics of matter coming into being as the result of being measured in some way uh that the the reality doesn't exist until it's been engaged uh and so it's not that's where to come back right what you said at the beginning about linearity it's not that one thing happens and then another thing follows but the thing that follows produces the thing that happens and so nature investigating itself the idea of an inside of an ex exteriority and an interiority that fold is to, is because of this idea of a of a uh, of a mutual performance of matter in which you would relate strongly with someone like Barad. So so I think that's the credible sort of conceptual framework behind this that's saying actually there's a reason to think space and time uh, differently uh, and space and time and matter differently. And on that basis, we can then produce this way of conceiving of how we might get past a, a nature culture binary. Yeah. And I think... Um... Another thing that seems to kind of like reemerge as important, if not central to that project is Barad's notion of the the apparatus, which I know is important to your yeah. work. Yes. There's nothing that can be considered apart from the apparatus. I think it's a more, I don't know if it's more useful, but it's a more robust term and a more intricate term than assemblage because assemblage to me implies or denotes a mere product of addition. Yeah, I and think Kirby makes that point early on. She she mm -hmm. takes she that she she uh, references that the you know people will particularly those who follow that kind of actor network theory sort of even if you're thinking about the agency of objects and all sorts in the end you get to a kind of assemblage and yeah it's a, it's a process of addition. 
but yeah, the apparatus is a. She uses the phrase, "the the the world is taking the measure of itself." In other words, God is infinitely jerking off and ejaculating into God's own mouth. <laughs> Which I'm saying as a joke, but I'm not joking. I don't know where to go from there. No, I think that's that's my way of placing a, a period at the end of this conversation. Nice work. <laughs> oh, this has been a great this has been a great discussion. Really valued this. No, this is great. I, I love this book. I'll probably read this one again, honestly. Yeah. So, so two more chapters. Two more chapters. I'm not sure when we'll get to it. Um, definitely not next week. Maybe the week after. We'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you a calendar invite for the week after, and then we can okay. move it. Okay. All right. No, this is great. Awesome.